Race Remix. This is Race Remix, a podcast that pushes forward enriching and challenging conversations about the arts and racial justice. We talk with artists, poets, writers, directors, dancers, designers, performers, and creative practitioners from the Arizona community and beyond. As you listen, be inspired to advocate and activate in your community. Together, we can create a more just, joyful, and sustainable world. Welcome to Race Remix. Welcome to Race Remix. I'm your host, Amy Cray. Co-hosting this episode is Gloria J. Wilson. It's great to be here with you, Amy. Thrilled that we can be joined today by Silas Monroe. Silas is a Los Angeles-based designer, curator, writer, and educator. Welcome, Silas. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful to be here and excited to chat with y'all. Silas has put a wealth of research and experience into a new book called Strike Through, Typographic Messages of Protest. Published in 2022 with Letterform Archive, this visually delicious book shows readers the many, many ways dissent has been expressed through text and graphics and how we can craft our own demands for social change. I want to ask you to read a passage from your curatorial statement in this wonderful book. Strike through. The penetration of ink through paper in the printing process. To draw a line through text, to call for the deletion of an error. Protesters have long used typography to strike through myriad forms of oppression. Their urgent, often handmade signs, placards, and posters put bigots on notice that their hate has been marked for correction. Curated in the wake of the 2020 police murders of Black Americans, including George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and on the upswell of ensuing Black Lives Matter protest, this exhibition and book showcase examples of typographic anger and agency from across moments, places, and movements. As it is seen in the streets, on the printed page, and even on the bodies of demonstrators. You work in the realm of design. And so I have three questions related to that. What is design? How do you define it? And how does it relate to art? I think for me, the way that I define design is a creative practice of expressing and reflecting culture. And I think design's role is about communication and connection. In our contemporary culture, we treat art as an elevated thing, like in a Western lens. But I feel like, for me, design kind of bridges all of those things in a way that's quite mutable. How did you get started with design? When did it become a part of your life? How did you end up focusing your creative energy on issues of racial justice within and through design? I think I first noticed design in the public library. I grew up in the suburbs of D.C. in Northern Virginia, and there was a public library that I could walk to, the Woodrow Wilson Public Library. And 
part of why I was drawn to the library is it was really quiet. I just really noticed the books. I love the materiality of them. I love the variety of them. And I both love like reading and text, but also image. And so in graphic design, all of those kind of manifest. And so that was an entry point when I got to art school, like that felt like a path. And I think also because of growing up middle class, having interracial parents, I think also being a queer person. I don't know, there's just this idea of like when I was entering art school, I felt like there's a little bit of pressure to have a practical skill to take away. And so graphic design had this kind of merging of text and image. And also it was a trade and it could have a function in society. Um, But it also felt like when I work in design, it's almost as if the two halves of your brains come together. Like I could see you have, you know, one lobe in each hand and like through design, there's kind of this fusing together. Once I got to design school, I realized as I was taking design history, I didn't see myself represented in those courses. I didn't see black folks. I didn't see queer folks. And so through the course of school, but also going into practice, that idea of social justice was just about wanting to see myself in my own work, in the work of my students once I became a teacher, and and needing to find kindred spirits. Because I just... uh, there was a lot missing. And the more I studied and the more I started to work, the more I realized how many gaps there were. Why are you interested in typography and typeface? I'm interested in type and typography because of its meta message. So when you look at a typeface, you can read the text of what it's saying, but the forms carry other information. They're encoded in a way, visually, and they connect to letter forms that have come before. I mean, even the Roman alphabet, which we use to typeset English, has a whole colonial lineage connected to the Roman Empire and Latin Western communication. So the idea of racism and inequality is inherent in letter forms. But at the same time, I feel like as someone who carries marginalized lineage, type has an ability to put a visual into the language that has something extra, has something other, something expressive. And I think that allows an opportunity for resistance in that visual form. And it allows you to take a stand to push back I'm thinking particularly of the work of Trey Seals, um, whose typeface equals is used in Strike Through, the display typeface, where he researched a series of protest posters through the 20th century, and he kept seeing a similar slanted sans-serif lettering style, but it was showing up in women's suffrage posters and anti-Vietnam posters and queer liberation posters in the civil rights. And so there was this sort of different agenda, but then the same typographic feel. And I feel like when you design a typeface or where you choose a typeface, you can add that extra edge to it. Like you can tell a story through the form. And that just fascinates me 
that endless sort of search to find the right voice for a particular text. It's like the graphic designer's role becomes interpretive in that way. What is a sans serif? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So in the history of like inscriptional Latin text, part of the way the letters were formed, which were like painted and then also chiseled in stone, there is sort of like a flourish when you move the brush or you move the chisel that creates a, a form that comes at the end of a stroke. And that's a serif. And so serifs have this connection with the way things are made, way type is made. And so a sans serif typeface, which you start seeing those show up in the late 19th century, early 20th century, removes that flourish. And I think part of the ideology or the way we experience a sans serif is a, a kind of refusal of, of a certain kinds of history or tradition and are linked or associated with something modern, with this idea of like um, that comp- complicated <laughs> uh, phrase modernism of like culture embracing the now and how technology is shifting and I guess the hope to try to say something different visually and that, that has a lot of baggage. It's complicated, the sans serif, but I think that's the idea behind a sans serif is like to try to like strip away a form of history. What are some really common serif typefaces and sans serif typefaces that your average you know, PC user would be familiar with? Yeah, I feel like serif times, New Roman, which you know, comes from newspaper printing. Uh, it's originally a British origin, but becomes associated with like factual information and legal documents. Helvetica is one of the most known sans serif typefaces that was designed in Switzerland in the mid-20th century that kind of has a sleekness. It's used in a lot of branding and corporate communication, but it's on pretty much every computer. And there's alternate versions like Ariel is a descendant of that. That's a common sans serif. Other serifs like Georgia, a serif typeface that you would see and use quite a bit. I think you kind of throw in also Courier, which is technically sans serif, but kind of feels like typewriter-y and kind of mechanical and also is used in like a number of legal documents too. So there's kind of these like system typefaces that you see and kind of think of as almost like an archetypal version of these categorizations of letter forms. You talk about how you came to design through your love of books. Uh, Your latest book, Strike Through, Typographic Messages of Protest, is filled with design. There are 250 images of protest signs, posters, clothing, buttons, publications, and ephemera. What were your goals in this project? Yeah, I had a number of goals with Strike Through. One goal came out of how the project started. I was asked by Letterform Archive in San Francisco to co-curate this show with Stephen Coles, who is a resident curator there. And they approached me after the murder of George Floyd about curating this show about protests and One of their goals was to try to do some of what I was talking about with my own design education research was to have more inclusivity into their collection. The Letter from Archive has 
a really rich, amazing collection of all typographic objects from ancient cuneiform tablets to now contemporary protest graphics. But at the time when they asked me, and they're still working on this, there's a lack of um, artists and designers of color. And so one of the goals was that the show could help the archive acquire new pieces into their collection. And then I think also there's already been a lot of scholarship around protest, but it just felt like in the last few years, it's become more and more resonant with our time now. And so for me with this project, I think every history project is sort of like, how do I make sense of the now through history? By organizing this show and generating the publication, for me, there was this idea of call and response that I kept seeing, both in terms of when you go to a protest or when you see pictures of a protest, there is the chant, this idea of protesters asking for demands. Usually someone in the crowd kind of starting the chant, you know, what do we want? When do we want it now? And these, this kind of talking back and forth to each other as a collective. And that idea of also how does this experience that we're having right now with the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, police brutality connect to the work of the Black Panthers and Emory Douglas, for example. And how does that connect to the history of other forms of civil rights or labor issues or queer revolution? Like there's all of these forms of solidarity that I was discovering and that became really important to evidence that both in the publication and in the exhibition. And so there are moments in the publication where there's direct formal comparisons where you can see protesters either using similar typefaces or similar colors or also have similar messages. And the kind of frustration of dealing with these themes over and over again, but also the empowerment of looking at those who came before us and how that can energize us to continue to fight, to continue to resist. Silas, there are numerous trained and untrained designers who have facilitated social change across time. What designs for racial justice have moved and inspired you, like really rocked your world? Yeah, there's so many. I think one of the people that I think about a lot is Fabiana Rodriguez, who's an Oakland-based artist, designer, and she really speaks truth to power in her work. Part of that call and response lineage is she was very much uh, influenced by Emory Douglas, who was one of the early members of the Black Panther and their Minister of Communication. And her lettering and illustration style just reflects this really beautiful Latinx experience, but also transcends that too in a way that I think is just really audacious and really visually rich. She also cites Sister Creta Kent as one of her influences, who I also think is really amazing as a woman, as an educator, uh, as someone who's processing their faith, you know, as a Catholic nun. But then she's also being connected to pop art and her own lettering style, speaking of hand lettering. And yeah, those are two that come to mind. I feel like Another standout that I didn't know about before working on the show is Mari Tepper, who is still living 
and was part of the sort of hate Ashbury movement of protest. And she has a piece in the show called Hallelujah to the Pill. And it is a celebration of a woman's right to choose, of birth control. And it's so visually striking and just really resonates with the recent repeal of Roe v. Wade. And that's really important. And like all of those artists are connected to Aviana also argues for basically in, in one of her posters, she's like telling the government to like keep your power off my pussy, basically. And this idea of like claiming bodily autonomy and embodiment and self-care as part of her work. And I feel like that theme of the body shows up a lot in Strike Through of like designers, protesters, activists literally putting their body on the line to protest something. Another example is the collective Brick by Brick who makes these suits that have bricks on them and they have language, derogatory phrases from Donald Trump on there, like nasty woman and other things that he said that were hateful and they use them as patches on this wall and they stand together in protests. And I feel like that's really powerful to take something that's hateful or painful and then redirect that and reclaim that. And I feel like the artists in Strike Through really inspire me to do that. And the last piece that I wanted to mention is the work of Heather Snyder Quinn, Adam Del Marcel, and the developer Flor Salatino. They made a app called Mariah, which is a augmented reality protest tool. And the name comes from a, a, a young woman named Mariah Lotti, who unfortunately died of an opiate overdose as part of the negligence of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. And so with the app, Mariah, you can take your cell phone and hold it up in various institutions and places, particularly the Met and the Louvre, where the Sacklers have given money to art museums. And the app will display an overlay of typographic and video protests. And for me, that is really powerful in a time when there's a lot of violence and where it takes a lot of risk to be a protester in a public space. And this allows you to protest in a virtual way where you don't actually even need a physical sign. And I just think that's a really powerful, important tool. We're seeing racial justice movements like Black Lives Matter and movements led by Black women, such as Hashtag Me Too and Say Her Name, using online platforms to get their message out and to organize. What have you noticed in these digital practices? I think the silver lining of the COVID-19 pandemic was this ability for activists, artists, designers to organize virtually and to share their messages in a digital space. And to your point, I'm thinking of folks like the NAP ministry that have been able to circulate ideas of rest is resistance and other political messages through social media posts and how also information about being safe and communicating during a protest and like informational guides that give you strategies for avoiding or evading police and surveillance and other ways to regroup, I felt was really powerful and really inspiring. I think it's also become a platform for the extension of people who do actually protest in person. 
a lot more people are going to or can see a protest because of the ubiquitous digital documentation that happens. And I feel like that's a really powerful tool, especially for Black women and other folks who have been marginalized, where you can now suddenly amplify your voice. I think there's a little bit of a shadow there, too, where literally a lot of POC folks and queer POC folks get quote-unquote shadow banned in these digital spaces where like their content is like blocked or banned or flagged a lot more so that there's kind of like there's a sadness for me in that but overall I feel like that there's just so much opportunity to have your voice heard that that has been really inspiring for me. What challenges do you see in designing for social movements today? I think there's no shortage of opportunity or need for design to be part of the conversation of social justice. I think there are a couple of key things that are obstructions, (laughs) for lack of a better term. I think one is the history of design thinking, which is being adapted a lot for like thinking about organizational change or institutional change, which involves like ideating and brainstorming and collaborating, can have kind of a history of white supremacy itself. Can you say more about that? Uh, Yes, because design thinking as a term is associated with a lot of Bay Area theorists and studios and technologists that come out of the human factors movement, I would say 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, where industrial design and product design were influencing the idea of prototyping and iterating as a a way to evolve design and have connected to design studios like IDEO, where like design as a consultancy showed up as a way that design could be problem-solving and could solve issues, social issues. And I think the problem with that is a lot of those designers and a lot of that thought come from a place of savior and white savior modes of like, oh, we can, if we just make a process, I can come into a community and I can use my skills as a designer to like repair and restore, mm-hmm. but can be very exploitive in a way. And so I think the antidote to that is like, community-led, long-term engagements using some of the strategies of design in a way that I think is more reparative rather than harmful. And I think the flip side is, in all this amazing watershed moment of social justice, I think we can also hit fatigue, um, both in terms of activists and, and folks who are doing the work, where... I think there can be this exertion exhaustion thing where we're just asked to do so much and so we can get burnt out. And then I think there's also over time resistance from organizations to change because it's hard work, (laughs) because it takes a lot of effort and it takes time and it takes uncomfortable conversations. And so I think the way that I navigate that and the way that I get help is really working in collaboration and working with collectives and doing my best to also rest and surf and have meals with people who are doing this work and to take time away and to instill joy and make things just for myself. So I think that idea of how do you practice in ways that's enduring? 
like that can endure for ourselves, for each other, for institutions. And like, how do we take our time and put in time and are allowed time to do this kind of work? So it leads me to wonder how expanding design history, what you might call the foundations of design, or at least the narrative about the foundations of design, how that relates to conversations about race and racial justice in this country. I think as long as I, my collaborators, anyone that's interested in doing social justice work can think about it as a series of small conversations, small interventions. I think that helps me not get paralyzed by the enormity of the challenge of deconstructing an arbitrary concept like race that has been embodied in everything, (laughs) especially everything design. And that additive collective process, which many folks are doing already, one resource I'm thinking about is the People's Graphic Design Archive that has um, user-submitted elements. Like that idea that we don't have to do it alone and that if we personally expand things with friends, with collaborators, with support, I think that frees us to have a kind of power that we need to dismantle these histories of racial oppression. This sounds like call and response. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. Yeah, it is that same metaphor, that same power that we can have where we can hear ourselves, we can see ourselves, and we can be validated and validate each other and learn from each other in a way that can, I think, break that myth of the sole author and the expert. Like, I feel like that is what I try to embody is like, how can I be a facilitator and a a space holder for and with others as much as it is my own voice that is calling for change. And so can you share more about the notion of call and response? It, It seems to be a through line in all of the work that you do. Yeah, the musical structure of call and response can be traced back to African musical traditions. You also see it in the Caribbean and Latinx uh, musical traditions that were carried through the slave trade, through enslaved Africans who brought this musical tradition of a vocalist or musician saying a phrase and then a collective or an audience responding. You see it in gospel, blues music, cumbia, so many musical forms. And so that idea of an initiator and a responder in dialogue is something that just really resonates with me, I think, because of my own lived experience and that of especially my mother's side. Um, I also played the drums in middle school and high school. And so part of the percussive part of a band or an ensemble is kind of like keeping the pace or keeping the rhythm. And there's also play. You can improvise. You can shift and kind of riff off of each other, kind of like what we've been doing in this conversation. And I feel like that that is a design strategy. <laughs> and it's one that is not tied to a Eurocentric perspective. But it can also expand and shift and be used for a lot of different roles, whether you're operating as a designer or a writer or a teacher or a student 
our collaborator. It allows a lot of uh, shifting of power and shifting of effort. I think I can speak for many people, not only in this studio, but in the world, and say that we, that we all have many things to keep, keep learning um, and failing and trying again. I want to thank you for being here and sharing the mm. wisdom, your knowledge, your energy. It's been a joy. Thank you. Likewise, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you for giving me space to share my experience and reminding me of just the power of the conversations, the spaces, the projects that I get to be involved in in a way that's like really, really nurturing. And I hope you all feel nurtured by this experience too. Absolutely. Thank you for joining the conversation on Race Remix today. The podcast is the creation of Racial Justice Studio in Tucson, Arizona, land of the Tohono Otham and Pasqua Yaki. This episode would not have been possible without the efforts of our team of students, staff, and faculty fellows, Chelsea Farrar, Amy Cray, myself, Gloria Wilson, Isaac Schutz, Deanna Scott, and Jenny Stern. This program is brought to you by the Arizona Arts at the University of Arizona with generous support from John and Sandy Flint. If you enjoyed this episode, please invite your friends, family, students, and colleagues to listen. Interested in joining our community or listening to more episodes? Please visit braceremix.arts.arizona.edu and sign up to receive emails about upcoming news and events. You can also learn more about all of our guests in the show notes. Race Remix.